Welcome to episode 139 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I am well. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Can I just say, you look great. <laughs> Thanks. That's that's a little bit weird. That's a little strange, but I appreciate the compliment. Just a little, uh, little ego boost there. I'm just telling it like it is. Just trying to bring that encouraging love into your life. All right. Well, let's move on to some affirmations and denials then. <laughs> Here's, here's the great thing about our podcast, one of the many great things. We can take awkwardness and pack it into any small amount of time. It's true. That's very true. We're only like 52 seconds in by my count, and already yeah. the awkwardness is palpable. I can hear it, and you're, it's palpable. It is palpable. All Just right, keep so. saying palpable. That'll increase the awkwardness <laughs> even more. So palpable. why don't you kick us off with an affirmation this week? So I am affirming this week our audience, and specifically our audience who voted for us in this tournament. So Classy. we made it out of the first round. Yes. I'm assuming that by the time this uh, this episode airs, the, the next round will be over because uh, there's four more uh, to vote on this round. And we just started the fourth one. And I think he's doing one or two a day. So I released a special episode encouraging people to go vote last time. I'm going to try to do that again when I found out about it. Uh, but we are up against PresbyCast this week. Uh, Presbycast is a great show, by the way. So one of the things I'm learning from this uh, tournament is that there's all these great shows that I had never heard of. Um, I haven't heard of Presbycast, but there's a lot of um, a lot of shows that I had I wasn't familiar with that uh, are getting some publicity, which is cool. So we're up against Presbycast this week. Uh, if we uh, get out of this episode or out of this uh, this bracket into the final four, uh, then we will be up against the dividing line I'm predicting. So um, it should be interesting. Uh, I suppose this won't be the final four. This will go from 16 to eight. Um, so I don't know who we're going to be up against in the next round. Probably probably the bar podcast, BAR podcast, which is going to be a, a tight one. We're going to have to squeak through. So again, uh, if we're still in it when you're hearing this, please make sure you go to seven years of prosperous memes from Pharaoh's dreams. Uh, on Facebook and uh, follow the page, check out their cool memes. It's got a lot of creative stuff, but make sure you vote for us in this tournament. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun and we're really hoping to get to at least the final four. We're going to get squashed like a bug by James White uh, in the final four. No unless doubt. Al Moeller comes from behind and beats the briefing with <laughs> or beats uh, dividing line with the briefing. Um, but even so uh, to get squashed by like a bug in the world of podcasting by the dividing line or by the briefing would be a great honor. I'll take it. Yes. I'll take it. It's almost really funny to talk about this in these terms, like to have something where, because this is like a, a tournament style bracket style, like March yeah. madness kind of ranking of podcasts. And you're right. There've been, there's a lot, there's almost not a bad podcast in this yeah. entire group. Yeah. So it's just really a fun way to kind of get a sense for what people are listening to. And that's all it is. But of course, we we want to win. We do want to win. There, yeah. There's nothing on the line except a little bit of pride. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, there's no chance we're going to win. But I'm pretty exactly. excited that we got out of the first round. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we'll get out of this round as well. Yeah, me too. Get out there. So go vote. Rock the vote. Nice. Really What about classy. you? What are you affirming this week? Really classy. So this week, I want to affirm the public domain in two ways. So the first way is I love that, at least in this country, we have this, this um, I guess you call it a law, right? Where any kind of basically work of art that has been in published for a, a length period of time at some point becomes old enough where now it can be accessed without like the copyright. So it's, it's usually yeah. free. And what I found is that is fantastic that you and I have talked about quite some for some time is that there's just so many amazing works by these reform writers, the Puritans that now are in the public domain. So they're free for you to just download it. And in this day and age, that means generally that you're able to get them as a PDF or a Mobi or an EPUB file, yeah, AKA Kindle style, if you're into that jam and you should be, cause it's awesome. So here's what I want to affirm after that really long introduction, go to monergism.com and right on the homepage, they have a link that says free eBooks. 
and they have over 400 amazing free eBooks for you to yeah. read. And so the affirmation is kind of, I guess, to cycle one of these bad boys just into your reading. They're free, so you can't go wrong. It's not like you have to take them out of the library and have a uh, kind of a narrow, discrete period of time in which to read them or that they're going to cost you any money. If you pick one up and you don't like it, totally free. Again, I can't really come back to that enough. Totally free. Yeah. Yeah. So he, here's just like some of the ones that are just, these are just kicking around, like just chilling out on the monitors and website, ready for you to bring right into your Kindle and into your bedroom. So, or any other room that you read in for that matter. Didn't mean to make it weird. So we've got Expository Thoughts on the Gospels by J.C. Ryle. Selected Sermons of George Whitfield by George Whitfield. Basics of the Reformed Faith by Kim Riddlebarger. Or Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Just amazing works. And I know somebody's going to say, well, listen, I'm down with this public domain stuff, but the reason it's public domain is because it's old, and because it's old, it means it's written in a style that's a little bit difficult to read. I say to everybody, who cares? In the sense that it's really sometimes good to try to read a little bit above your, your level. So again, pick one up and just kind of cycle it in. A lot of these are short enough too, that you can almost make them devotional, read a couple yeah. pages every day. So that's the, the first affirmation. And where I'm doubling this up, like double stack style McDonald's, is I want to at the same time affirm the side project that you and I have called public domain, same name, but with a K in it to be extra reformed. Exactly. There's like a super amount of reform that we layered on there. And the reason why I'm affirming this is because you might be thinking, listen, I look at so much stuff in my eyes all day. I don't want to be bothered with doing some more reading. It would just be great if like the sweet dulcet tones of Tony and Jesse would read (laughs) public domain books to me. If that is where you're at. And I know there's many of you that are thinking that, then this is a podcast for you. It's called The Public Domain, and it's where Tony and I just read these wonderful and amazing works. And so you can just drop them on in your car ride to work or while you're in the shower or any other place, again, that you want to listen to stuff. Yeah. What's really cool about not The Public Domain as in our podcast, but Public Domain Works that ties into your whole it's old, it's in a bad style thing. The beauty of a public domain work is that if you are working from the original, then you can reproduce that original for whatever purpose you want for any reason without permission. So if you're one of those people that's sitting there going, oh, man, I would love to love to read this. But all I can find is this weird facsimile copy on Google Books. uh, That's like a photograph somebody took on their phone in the Harvard library. Then go ahead and download that bad boy. Uh, transform it into a Word document and modernize the language and then go to Amazon self-publishing and publish it as a book with you as the editor. So that takes a lot of time and energy. Um, But our friend Nate Pickowitz, that's exactly what he does with a lot of the works he's doing with this uh, American Puritan series that he's he's been working on is he goes, he finds an original copy, um, which a lot of these original copies of these classic works are available on like archive.com or Google Books, where literally they've gone into like the the archive stacks of these really historic libraries. They've taken digital photographs of these works. You can try to read them like that. They can be difficult because right. the language is weird. Sometimes the letters are written in a strange format. But you can literally just do that or you can do what we're doing. You can just read them out loud and publish them as a podcast. So um, there's all sorts of cool things you can do with public domain works that that I just think is really awesome. You do have to be a little bit careful, though, because if you're republishing a version that is uh, an edited version or a translated version of someone else doing this, then you're actually violating the copyright because the copyright is on that person's editing work or translation work. So you do have to get back to the original. It's a little weird that Kim Riddlebarger is on that, uh, that monarchism site. They must've got special permission or something because he's definitely not dead. And that's usually the marker of the uh, public domain is if the author is dead. Yeah, well, that's why I recommend their site, because they've got the, just this wonderful omnibus of all this amazing material. Yeah. So you can go out and find... I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Sovereignty of God, A.W. Pink, Morning and Evening, C.H. Spurgeon, and then, of course, one of your all-time favorite works in the history of the world, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. <laughs> yeah. That itself was a copy of something else, I think. Uh, yeah, do you mean, I'm pretty sure well, it was. I'm pretty all, sure it all, was. That's true. I mean, things that are improved have to come from some other thing, generally. 
Yeah, and sometimes you don't improve it. Sometimes you make it worse. <laughs> sometimes you it's like when you look over it. your friend's shoulder on a test, you you hardly ever get an exact replica. So if he has a perfect on the test, then you have by definition less than perfect. Well, that's true, and I don't want to extend this further than we need to, but of course I am, in the sense that, you know, sometimes you want to use that friend's test as a reference and say, "Well, clearly there's some things they got right, but then of course I'm going to basically supplement that with improvement. So I, I think I, I think we're on the same page. I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because sometimes you just don't know enough about the subject to produce your own material and you have to copy someone else. So we could do this all day. This is we great. could. I could do this all day. Uh, Insert this is great. Captain America meme. Well, I'm guessing that's not your denial, but maybe I did just segue into your denial. I think it is now. <laughs> <laughs> No, so so what I'm denying today, this is not really a serious topic, but it's also not a jokey topic, is I'm denying virtuous virtue signaling by Christians. And I want to just give one example. Now, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before I give this example is um, if you are a Christian who's convicted about uh, participating or having a subscription to Netflix as a result of what's going on with Georgia and the fetal heartbeat beat bill and all this stuff. That's up to you. That's your conviction. If you don't feel like you can uh, participate with a company, enter into a contract with a company that is uh, behaving the way they are, that is a totally fine thing for a Christian to do. Um, what I get really, really sick of is people who stand on the corner and trumpet their boycotts about these kinds of things. Um, and it's happening all over the place right now. It's mostly with uh, Netflix, although I would anticipate we're going to start seeing it with Disney and some other companies. A lot of film companies are getting involved in politics, specifically around abortion because of this thing going on in Georgia. And what I find in the past and I'm speaking out of my own history, I remember there was a point when I was I was probably, I don't know, like 21, maybe 22 and there was this announcement that Target was no longer going to allow the Salvation Army to ring bells outside of their uh, outside of their locations. And um, the Salvation Army is not I mean, it started as a Christian organization. I think you would, we would probably struggle to to see much of a Christian uh, an outward Christian reality in, in their activity now. But um, either way, they're a charitable organization. And so I said, I'm going to boycott Target. And that lasted until like three days later when I needed some laundry detergent and I didn't want to drive farther than the nearest Target. Right. So I'm not saying there aren't Christians that aren't going to boycott and do it successfully, but there's a couple things to keep in mind. Statistically speaking, no matter no matter who's doing the boycotting, boycotting doesn't actually seem to work to bring about uh, social change. So if you're doing it um, because you think it's going to somehow cause Netflix to, to reverse their, their course, there just are not enough Christians in the country uh, who are willing to do this, that it's going to make a difference. Even if even if every conservative reformed Christian in the country boycotted Netflix because of this, that is like a minuscule drop in their bucket. They don't even care. They're not even going to notice. Right. Um, so for the most part, us trumpeting on the corner that, oh, I'm going to cancel my Netflix subscription or I'm not going to go to Disney World next year or whatever it might be really is just us kind of like signaling our virtue. It's the same thing, actually. Uh, Al Mohler on the briefing brought this up recently. It's the same exact thing that Netflix itself is doing because Netflix hasn't actually done anything in terms of pressing on Georgia except to say if this starts, then we're going to press on Georgia. So they haven't put their money where their mouth is. They haven't actually canceled any productions. They haven't made any donations at this point to any legal funds or anything like that. They're just stating their virtue by signaling that this is what they're going to do. And my concern is that a lot of times Christians do that. And then if we don't follow through, then we've actually tarnished our witness with the world because one, we've we've broken the ninth commandment by saying we're going to do something and not doing it. And then right. two, we've actually we've actually implicitly stated that actually our subscription to Netflix is more important to than our position on abortion because we said I can't in good conscience participate with this company that's doing something evil and then we actually do. So like I said, if you um if you are convicted of this, then that's fine. That's your decision. Um, I would actually encourage people who have that conviction to just quietly cancel their subscription. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything to announce that to the world. So I would just encourage you to quietly cancel your subscription. And the other thing I just want to uh, point out is sometimes Christians will sort of take this stance of like, if you continue your subscription, you're living in sin. And the reality is, 
Um, when I pay someone for a lawful service, whatever that lawful service is, when I pay them for that lawful service, what they do with the revenue generated by my payment for their lawful service is not morally re- relevant to me in, in right. a direct sense. It may be that um, I can't support that company anymore. I can't partner with that company anymore, and that's fine. But I'm not accountable for the way that Netflix spends their money. I'm not paying them to fight abortion. I'm paying them to provide video content to me. And as long as they're doing that and they're doing it in a legal fashion, then morally I'm not in any sort of uh, dire straits as far as my my partnership with them in that endeavor. Um, Like I said, that doesn't mean there's not moral considerations. It doesn't mean that some people may not be convicted of that. Um, but it's just something to keep in mind. That's a good point because I think oftentimes we feel like we must be morally obliged in such a situation. I think the default position is you're not, but I like that you left it open for that kind of conviction of conscience. If you are convicted of that, then it is sin for you not to participate in boycotting. But I almost think anybody who's worked for a large organization or perhaps even a small one knows that if if somebody who's a customer, a previous customer, just stops using the service, the company has no idea in most cases why you stopped right. doing that. And in most cases, yeah. they're kind of like, well, fine, and it doesn't bother us. So I would even go one step further and say, cancel it quietly. And if you are canceling it for that reason, then send something to Netflix to let them right. know. That's not to say that's going to change their minds, but at least they will know. Yep. Because the companies are concerned about feedback. So yeah. you, you have to let them get a sense for why it is you're making the decision because we may think we're sticking it to them, like we're making this profound statement, but really they have no idea. And they don't care. I mean, realistically, right. they don't care. I mean, I used to work for Best Buy and and yes, like there's a certain element, especially in a, in a sales oriented environment where keeping your customers happy is important. But there are lots of times that customers would would call me and they would be upset with the service and they would say, you know, I'm never using you. I'm never purchasing a product from you again. And on more than one occasion, I said, that's fine. Someone else will purchase the product. Like right. I, I, it really doesn't bother us that much if you're not going to shop here anymore because one person does not affect our bottom line in a significant sense. Um, and, and that really is the case. But you're right. If, if you're going to cancel your service for this reason and you're you're absolutely free to do so. Um, and if your conscience is sensitive, then I would actually say your you as an individual are obligated to if your conscience is sensitive. Um, you're always going to get an email or a survey from someone when you cancel their service now that says, why are you canceling their service? And you should tell them. It's not going to change anything, most likely, um, right. even if every Christian in the country canceled their service. Now, maybe if every evangelical who is politically identified as an evangelical did, um, then that would do something. But that, that's not going to happen. And true, genuine, conservative, reformed Christians, there's simply not enough of us to be an agent of social change. And that's why, and this, this could be a whole episode in itself, that's why the way we fix these problems is not by engaging in social action, but by preaching the gospel. Exactly. I mean, that's really all there is to it. Exactly. Yeah, that's well said. I love that. All right. What about you? What are you denying? Yeah, something again. Why does this always happen where mine is like much less serious <laughs> than yours? But here we go. We're back in it. Uh, I'm denying against complex coffee and usually the attendant costs that come with it. Yeah. I, I was ordering some coffee with my wife recently. She actually generously offered to pick some up for me, and she is a big Starbucks fan. She had a gift card. She has the app. The app is super slick, you know, where you can mm-hmm. order the coffee and you just like roll in and just like snipe it off the counter. I love it. But we got into this conversation about where she, I was, she was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, well, what is there? And that's apparently the wrong question to ask when it comes that's to true. Starbucks because. There's a million types of coffee. And then it got into like this list. It was almost, I thought at one point she was just making up stuff to see if I was paying attention to what she was saying. And this is the one that, that I came across that I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. Cold brew with salted cream, cold foam. So the, for me, I just find this like that, that the whole thing sounds so pretentious and overrated. And that's, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure there are people out there that are like, come on, I love my cold foam and my salted cream. But there just seems like there's such a weird confluence of stuff that's happening yeah. there that I want to be like, come on, like, just give me some coffee. Because I, I think that coffee is probably like $7 maybe or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So, and I'm sure it's because like it's special salted cream. Like, why are we salting our cream? When, when does that become like a necessity? Is that, I'm sure it like in your palate, you're bringing all these different things, like these juxtapositions together and they exist in some kind of beautiful contrariety. But the bottom line for me is I just don't understand the, I guess you have to have cold foam, cold foam. If you can't say it, you shouldn't sell it. If you can't. <laughs> Jesse is so irate about this that you can't even talk. 
I just, uh, yeah, it's just the salted cream cold foam. So the foam is different from the cream. The cream has been salted. I guess that's in the coffee. Would you, okay, let me ask you this. Would you drink this? Just based on that description. That's all description. Cold brew with salted cream, cold foam. I mean, I really have no idea until I taste it. That That's the <laughs> tough part is like with Starbucks, with these weird coffee mixes they have, like you have no idea. Like I can't conceptualize what that would taste like. They have a cold brew nitro with sweet cream and I've had <laughs> sweet cream, so I can conceptualize what that might taste like. But one time I was into Starbucks uh, getting and I just got like a regular coffee with some like some cream in it. And they had like this new flavor and it was like uh, it was like hazelnut juniper juniper coffee and i was like that might be okay and no joke it it tasted like they brewed a coffee and then like soaked a sweat sock like a dirty sweat sock in it for a while and then (laughs) ground up a bunch of pine needles and like sprinkle that on top of it it was the most disgusting thing that i've ever tasted in my life but it's still on the menu so it's like it must not have been that bad because they they still sell it it's because you don't have that hipster palate yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. It made me the, want to punch a child. Wow, that is a really intense response. And it's good that there weren't any children around. Because <laughs> I was like, this is so bad. I think I'm going to punch a child. Uh, well, and that's kind of why I'm denying against it. Because it is it is a little bit complicated. And I'm super intimidated in Starbucks. If I'm ever in a Starbucks, which is not really that frequently, I say normal words to my wife. And then she speaks Starbucks. So she translates them into like whatever it is that is the equivalent of what I just said. Because I say normal things like words like small and coffee and cream. And I'm that guy that's like, yeah, can I get a large decaf coffee with like skim milk? And then they turn around and they're like, yeah, skinny half fat cafe latte with uh, bente cream juniper mix with the uh, two thirds. And I'm like, I, I just want coffee. I just want yeah. a coffee. I just want coffee. I think maybe yeah. less is more with the coffee thing. I would just love like delicious coffee. So I'm just denying against complicated coffee. It, it stresses me out. Yeah, I, I can see that about <laughs> yeah. you. So just, I'm going to take you to Starbucks when we're on vacation in July. And we're going to go and we're going to try some juniper coffee and we're going to uh, do a live tasting of it. I mean, I'm willing to give it a shot, but... Once you went into like the sweaty sock thing, I was like, that's a really vivid. So here's the thing about that. That's a super vivid flavor profile. Why can I taste that? And yet I've never had a dirty sock in my mouth. Because you know what a dirty sock smells like. And like (laughs) the majority of your taste is based on your smell. Right. No, I guess that's true. They'll have some other stupid unknown flavor by then that we can try that neither of us ever had. So great. Incidentally, last year you and I rocked a little Dunkin' Donuts action. I'm, I'm about I'm I'm down with Dunkin' Donuts because it's not quite as pretentious. Now they have their yeah. own stuff, but you can yeah. still kind of just roll in and be like, "I like large coffees." You guys got any of that back there? And they're yeah. like, "Yeah, no problem." And they're like, "Not only that, I'll give you a giant coffee." <laughs> they're like, "It's not a bente, it's not a grande, right. it's an right. extra large." Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Give me something I could like wade yeah. in for a little bit, and they'll be like, "Yeah, we got that. No problem." Exactly. Yeah. So this is exciting because we're kind of finishing up this series. Actually, we are finishing up this series on the atonement. And we've had really some wonderful conversations. I really enjoyed us being able to spend some time going into these different types of theories and trying to, again, kind of turn this jewel of the atonement around, so to speak, so we can see it from all different angles and get a sense for at least a small sense for what it means that Christ died on the cross. And just kind of as a reminder for anybody that's jumping in or has gone through the entire ride with us, we spend so much time on this because for the Christian, the most fundamental of all commitments is the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course. And the Apostle Paul spends so much time, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, saying that the very heart of the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to the full counsel of God. And so while man's depravity establishes the need for salvation, that's pretty, uh, I think, clear. And the Father's unconditional election forms the plan of salvation. The atonement of God, the Son, is what accomplishes that redemption in space and time. And so if we're really going to be fundamentally committed to the gospel, we really must be committed to an accurate, robust, and biblical understanding of the atonement. And I think that's really what we've tried to do through the course of these conversations, is get to some kind of center. And so we're ending with the penal substitution theory of atonement. And the reason I think, we didn't really talk about this, I, we just kind of threw it on the schedule, but the reason I think we've come to this as the final one, which as part of our discussion, is because at least if I had to choose just one phrase 
to capture the significance of the nature of the atonement, I would say that the best summary phrase would be penal substitution. In other words, that is to say, like, on the cross, Jesus received in himself the penalty for our sins as a substitute for us. So just to set, before we kind of just jump into that conversation, just to set that groundwork, I'm drawing from what I think is just a a beautiful summary written by uh, the Apostle Peter in chapter 2, where he says, uh, 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So we've we've talked about so many things. We've talked about um, the healing theory, expiation theory, the governmental theory, satisfaction theory. But I think what we're driving at here, the center of gravity of the atonement, at least for me as I understand the scriptures, is that it means the cross is not merely just an example for us to show us how to live. It's, it's certainly that, but not all of that. It's not merely a demonstration of God's love for humanity. It's that, but certainly much more. But most fundamentally, the cross is the innocent son of God standing in the place of guilty sinners, bearing in his own person the full exercise of the righteous wrath of the Father against the sins of his people. And yeah. so that's why I think we're ending on, on penal substitution, because I think we both believe that it fits best. It best encapsulates that there's many other things we've drawn from these different theories that have been helpful and perhaps encouraging that penal substitution really is the coalescence of all of those and it has the center that it most comports with the biblical data. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, we've, we've remarked all throughout this series that um, none of the other models are 100% wrong. Um, right. But apart from the penal substitution model, they either fly off into some sort of um, universalism, right? We talked about that at length last week, um, or they become kind of incoherent in themselves. So like Abelard's moral influence theory is, is roughly speaking um, that the atonement is that Christ shows us how to be holy people by his death on the cross. But uh, in what sense is a meaningless death on the cross, a way to show people how to be holy if, um, if it doesn't actually do something to bring about the salvation of people. So, so there's those two, there's two poles where the, the, the penal substitution model limits the atonement or restricts the atonement in, in such a sense that it makes it not universal. And then it, it gives meaning to these subjective atonement models where, um, where otherwise the meaning just doesn't, it doesn't cohere. It doesn't make any sense. So I think you're right that this is the center of gravity. And you know, what I've found is when I talk to, um, newer Christians, or if I think back to when I was just a baby Christian and didn't know much about theology, this, when you, when you are asked, or when you hear the language of Christ died for me, um, this is just sort of like the instinctive way that your, your brain goes is that, you know, once you, once you understand the whole gospel, that, that we deserve sin, we deserve penalty for our sin, or that we, we are at odds with God because of our sin, because he's righteous and we're not. And Jesus did something to make it so that we could be united with God. There's this instinctive understanding that what Jesus did on the cross took away our sin, but not in a sense that it, that God ignores it. Somehow it was still resolved. Somehow God's wrath was still addressed. Um, And so penal substitution is the way that we reconcile, as we've said repeatedly, how God can, can both be the justifier of the elect and also be just in the justification of the elect. And the answer is that the penalty due for sin is not, uh, not remitted it is actually executed, but it's executed on someone apart from the person who actually committed the sin. So that person substitutes in that place and the penalty is executed upon that person. Right. I like that. And maybe we should spend a little bit of time just kind of unpacking what that means, because this is often, I think, a confused theory. It often ends up in with some kind of like cosmic child abuse, like we've talked yeah. about before. Um, but the righteous wrath that our sins aroused in God was exercised fully on the suffering servant when God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And I use that language like specifically from Isaiah because I think whereas with some of the other theories we've talked about, you can proof text some of the scripture and draw out a thread from that. With penal substitution, there's like a clear arc across all of the scriptures that keep drawing us back to this idea that the atonement was a penalty, that something was suffered 
and that there was an actual price that had to be paid, and also that it was done in a vicarious manner. So those yeah. two things seem to keep coming back as much as we like to pull away and say, well, it's either one or the other or something else. But if we look throughout like the entire Old Testament just by itself, and, and actually, I guess, moving into like the New Testament by way of extension, you know, we have the Savior, here's our, our Passover land, who, who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf, became a curse for us, and thus, because of that, extinguished the Father's wrath against our sin. So here we have like this wonderful explanation that that comports with the fact that God is jealous and wrathful and that sin must always be punished. And yeah. so it, it's not, again, it's not sweeping it under the rug. It's not even coming and saying, well, you, you've done enough good. It's this idea that somebody must pay. And yet we cannot find like who is going back to revelation, who can come and open the scroll? Like who is worthy? We need somebody who is worthy in and of himself to live a life on my behalf and in so doing, not only be under the law, but then also suffer the actual price because of the sin that was committed. And only in penal substitution, we have the unification of all those things. Plus, I would say almost everything else that we've talked about that is biblical. So yeah. I, I think that we just always end up here. And you're right to say that there's an instinct to want to come to this place. And I think that instinct is the biblical instinct that anybody who has read the Bible thoroughly and thoughtfully is going to find that the verses themselves and even between the verses keep drawing us back to this idea that there was something that had to be made right. And that in doing so justice requires punishment. Like, is there any kind of justice that doesn't require punishment? So like for us to say, we want to live in a just world and we trust that God is just and will someday make all things right. Well, in some sense he has already made all things right by his justice on the cross. Yep. Yeah, so I want to read a little bit out of Mike Horton's uh, Pilgrim Theology, which is sort of um, it's sort of an abridgment of his Christian faith, full size systematic. Um, it's sort of simplified down a little bit for a, a different audience. And he writes here. Um, he says uh, it is impossible to understand the New Testament terms anti and hyper as intending anything other than substitution. Christ in the place of sinners, the guiltless for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. For our sake, God made him who knew or to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The penal aspect is evident in the phrase made sin, and its substitutionary aspect is in the words for us. He suffered for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered for you. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was made a curse for us and was offered once to take away the sins of many. And one of the things that Horton is really, really crystal clear on that I think is is really important, the caricatures of um, penal substitution. And and if you ever have this debate with like a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, who's going to try to undercut this theology, they're going to point out that um, it, that it, it's sort of a, um, it dis it fractures the Trinity. If you have one person of the Trinity, making a payment to another person of the Trinity, right. because the external works of the, um, of the Trinity are indivisible. So the son as a divine, person cannot make a payment to the father as a divine person, because at the same time, the father would have to be making a payment to himself. But what instead we have to recognize, and Horton makes this clear, and the confessions, the, the catechisms make this clear too, and we'll read that in a minute. But this, the payment for sin is not necessarily, and, and again, we're using uh, anthropomorphic kind of accommodated language. The scriptures are revealing to us things, divine things in a creature way, a creaturely way. But the payment is not to the father per se. But the payment is made in order to satisfy divine justice. Now, we know because of divine simplicity that divine justice is not a separate thing from the the divine persons. But in our sort of creaturely way of speaking and thinking, we have to think about divine justice as a standard that is established. It's established by God, but it's a standard that's established that is conceptually distinct from God. And so so it's not like um, it's not like the king is angry. And so the king's son offers up a payment to the king on behalf of the, like the peasant that, uh, sinned, but it would be more like if, um, if the king establishes laws 
and the law dictates that a certain amount of money must be placed into the into the royal treasury if such and such a crime is committed and the peasant commits the crime but can't pay the fee and so the option is the peasant is executed or the peasant somehow comes up with the fee and the king's son the king says you know what this is this is not the, the kingdom that we want to have and so you're going you're going to pay the fee i need you to go earn the income and pay the fee and that goes into the, the divine treasury now that may seem like kind of an end runaround because ultimately the treasury is under the auspices of the king and the king ultimately owns the treasury but we have to conceptualize uh penal substitution in that fashion otherwise what we do end up having is this weird fracturing of the trinity where one one person is executing something in time that the others are not um, and and we have to understand it is a unified act of the single person, even though the the um, the penalty is being paid for according to the human nature. It's still a unified act of the single person. So we have right. to just be careful with our language. Um, and I think there's a good precedent in the you know historic Christian tradition to be making these kinds of, of clarifications, because, like I said, even in even in the Westminster uh, Shorter and Larger Catechism, the payment that Christ makes is to satisfy divine justice. There's no language of making a payment to the Father that I've found anywhere in the, the Reformed Confessions. Instead, this payment is made. He offers himself up a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Um, we just have to be clear on that, or we do end up becoming sort of the caricature that uh, that sometimes we're accused of being. Right. That's a really great point, because if we start from the place that by asking if God is holy, righteous, and good, if he has perfect integrity, then sin must be paid for, right? I right. mean, we, we can't go anywhere else but say it must be paid for. And the problem is, I think hell is a penalty that none of us could ever really pay. I mean, right. all of the wrath of God against my sin, the wrath that I was sure to experience in hell, was fully satisfied because it was fully borne by my substitute. And I think we see this throughout the scriptures, but maybe really pointedly in an interesting place, at least for me, which is the interaction of Jesus with God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, where I think yeah. there's a real sense that what's about to happen is both penal and substitutionary in nature. So let me just read like a, a couple of verses from Luke 22. This is right where Jesus is interacting with his disciples and then actually spend some time in prayer. So Luke reads, and he came out and proceeded and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Yeah. And I, I've often read this and thought, I don't know if you've had the same kind of line of reasoning. Why is it that there is so much agony happening here? Because here we have Jesus, the son, who is clearly in the path and in the direct will of God, the father. Is there not an amazing assurance here? This so-called, you know, peace that goes beyond our understanding. And what I best can understand from this is is in by looking at it through the lens of penal substitution, because I think what we're seeing here is Jesus having a strong realization that he is about to bear the wrath of God. This cannot right. be about death itself, because how, like we said before, how many Christians have gone joyfully to their own deaths in the form of persecution? Right. So I think what we have here is even a recognition of the substitution nature of what's to happen and that that substitution is going to come in the form of a punishment that will be meted out by God for on behalf of his chosen people across the entire eternity of space and time against his son at a single point in time. And I think that is the agony that Jesus is wrestling with here. At least that's my interpretation. Like what, what say you about that? Yeah, I think you're right that it, it can't be simply about death and suffering. And and one of the things um, that we have to remember is, and actually this ties into what I was going to read out of the catechism, um, is the suffering of Christ, the passion of Christ, the passive righteousness of Christ does not just begin when the first nail goes into his hands. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. just begin when the first strike of the whip hits his back. It, it begins from the moment of his conception and continues on until the moment of his resurrection. Right. So the entire estate of humiliation is his passive 
obedience, his passive righteousness. And so even the suffering, the angst that Christ has in the, the garden, if you want to call it angst, I don't know if angst is the right word, but, but the, the, um, the suffering, the passion in the garden, and I mean passion in terms of like passion, suffering, pathos, that's actually a part of Christ's redemptive atoning work. Right. So it's not, it's not when we read the, um, we have this tendency and this gets into Christology. I mean, this, this is all Christology anyways, but we have this tendency to read the garden of Gethsemane accounts as though Christ goes into the garden and he says to God, you know, I I really don't want to do this. Is there some other way that this can happen? Because that cross thing just does not appeal to me. And, and I really just, I don't want to die. Like I love life and I'm, and and so we paint this picture of Christ being at odds with the father. Um, and, and even, more significant than that, I mean, that's already heresy, but even more significant than that, that would also mean that Christ is at odds with his with himself. His own internal wills are divided. Um, and that's just not good Christology. So so we look at this and we get really confused because we want to say, well, like the, the, the son's joy is to do the will of the father. And it's obviously the will of the father to go to the cross. So what's going on here? Well, what's going right, on here exactly. is that Christ is beginning to experience the um, existential sorrow and sadness and, and curse of God, even before going to the cross. So he's going into the garden. He's looking, he's looking forward proleptically. He's, he's anticipating the physical suffering of the cross, but he's anticipating the spiritual suffering of the cross. And he's asking, just like a sinner asks God to take away our spiritual sorrow, he begins to ask God to take that away from him. And that, that act, that action of, of, almost repentance, it's contrition, it's it's this angst and anxiety and, and desolation for his sin, that culminates in the cry of dear election on the cross. Right. So we shouldn't see this as like Christ is asking for, I mean, he does, he does say, and he is asking if, if it, if there's any other way for this to occur, then please let it happen. But not because he doesn't want to go to the cross, but because he's beginning to He's beginning to play out or act out, not in a sense that it's fake, but, but the suffering of the cross begins in the garden of Gethsemane. It's not, it's not that it, it starts at the moment of the the crucifixion, but the suffering of the cross is a lifelong event for Jesus. It's a lifelong reality. And it begins to culminate as he starts this prayer. So we just have to really remember that his, his priestly service and this, so I'm going to read a couple, um, a couple questions here in the catechism. Um, it says here, what are the offices that Christ executes as our redeemer? It's question 23 of the shorter Christ is our redeemer executes the office of a prophet, a priest and a King, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Um, I'm going to skip question 24, which is about Christ being a prophet question 25. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest answer? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And then I'm going to jump over real quick to the Westminster larger catechism, because in order to understand what that means, we need to understand what the humiliation, what the humiliation of Christ is. And so question 46 of the larger says, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? Answer, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he for our sakes emptied himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception, birth, life, and death, and after his death until his resurrection. So penal substitution is not just the penalty of the cross. The reason that Christ can be our penal substitute is because he lives this entire life of humiliation right. and his suffering starts. He undergoes all the common infirmities of all of us. He undergoes the humiliation of being born. Like if you think about it, the birth process is terrible. It, like it's, it's bloody and it's gross and it can hurt the baby. It can hurt the mother. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when it's done and it's a beautiful thing that God has created, but it really is not like a, like a, like a pleasant experience for anyone involved. So, so we have to remember that this, this passive, passive obedience of Christ is a lifelong obedience and the, the penal substitution is not restricted to what's going on in the cross. That's well said. I mean, incidentally, that's why Mormons, for example, believe that the, all the atonement happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Right. Now, that's incorrect in that it's too narrow. But you can at least say, well, they're getting it right that they're seeing what's happening there. The agony that is being undertaken right. by the, by Jesus in the garden is real, and it's part of what is is foreshadowed in like the atonement proper in the sense of the death and resurrection. I think probably a good way for us to kind of wrap up talking about penal substitution is to speak about a couple of maybe the, the attacks against it or maybe the misunderstanding is a better way to sure. say it. And some of these we brought up in kind of past episodes because penal substitution does, I think, sometimes get a bad rap. But I think it's mainly because it's, it's misunderstood. And a lot of times the discussions about penal substitution focus on like this forensic or legal nature of penal substitution right. and ends up treating salvation as if it were a transaction. And we sometimes right. fall into that kind of language because it is specific, it's legal, it helps us understand that, again, there was a cost, there was a price, it was paid, there was an exchange, so to speak. But here's the thing. An accurate understanding of the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement really avoids, I think, that type of one-sidedness by explaining properly that it was not merely the death penalty or raw exercise of, the, of wrath that Jesus endured, but that the wrathful punishment included Jesus' relational, not necessarily ontological, but separation from the Father that we all deserve to endure for eternity. Right. And there's a dynamic there. That's part of the gospel. And it's also refuted by exactly what you just said. That's why it was a good segue, because this idea that we have J- Jesus relationally, we are, we are coming into Christ, but part of that is the fact that he literally lived my life for me. Right. And it wasn't just a one-time like, okay, I'll go to the cross now. Let me ring the, cast, the cosmic cash register and everything's all set. It's, it's this culmination. It's this, it's like, in other words, it's like atonement on a Tuesday. Does that make sense? Like on a yeah. standard Tuesday, Jesus is in a sense accomplishing the atonement by living out for me in obedience what I'm, every disobedience that I have on every normal Tuesday of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, we have to be careful, too, because one of the problems um, I've said this about a lot of things when it comes to Calvinism is the the caricatures and the the things that we say are straw man arguments often come from Calvinist poorly explaining their views or poorly understanding their views. Absolutely. And so when we talk about the relational separation of the father and the son, um, you know, the, the hymn, like the father turns his face away. There are a lot of reform folk. They're like, Oh no, 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 that's heresy. You you can't shout, you can't, you know, shatter the Trinity like that. And that's true. But, but even that criticism sort of belies like a, an unladen or an unstated assumption about, the mode of atonement in the Trinity or in the exactly. incarnation. And so we would deny that the, the Trinity is ontologically affected in any sense. And because of divine simplicity, the eternal relationship between the father and the son in eternity past in the, in reference to divinity just is the divine nature. So, so that relationship cannot be divided. That relationship cannot be interrupted or changed or anything like that. That would be heresy. But the whole purpose of the incarnation is so that Christ and this covenant theology, right? Christ comes as the second Adam to earn all of the merit necessary to obtain the blessings of the covenant of works and to give that to his people. And this, and we can't miss this. And to take on all of the covenant curses that his people have merited on his behalf. Right so on. it's it's this great exchange that happens where Christ gets the covenant blessings and he gives them to us and we've we've earned the covenant curses and we give them to him and and they're destroyed in his body. They're destroyed in his person on the cross and then he's raised triumphantly. So the relational separation of the father and the son is not a separation between the father as God and the son as God, but as, from the father as God and the son as the second Adam. So he, he becomes, you know, um, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You could right. rephrase that in covenant language and say he became the covenantally cursed one, even though he knew no sin so that we might become the covenantally blessed ones of God. So that that's what's going on on the cross. We just have to understand that. And when you understand that, that sort of like flip that happens when you have that proper hypostatic union theology, 
a lot of these criticisms about cosmic child abuse or a division of wills in the Trinity, all of that just goes away because right. we're no longer talking about some weird situation where like Jesus is making a payment to the father and therefore making a payment to himself and the Holy Spirit that goes away because it's the second Adam who's, who is um, paying for the sins of the people. Even if we conceptualize that payment as going to the father, we still haven't screwed around with the Trinity in that because we're talking right. about the, the son as human, the single person, but the single person acting according to his human nature, not the single person acting according to his divine nature. Um, and the cosmic child abuse thing is the same thing. When we understand that this single person who has two wills is willingly in both wills, and that's why we can't get the garden wrong, he's willingly going to the cross according to both wills. There was never a point in Christ's ministry where the thought, I don't want to go to the cross, ever crossed his mind. Right? right now that we still have to wrestle, we still have to grapple with the garden. We still have to understand what that means. And that's a very difficult, complex passage when it comes to Christology. But if we, if for a second, we think that the son was opposed to the father's will, we've now made the son a sinner and we've lost everything. Right. Right. Exactly. And so there, and there's one, this relates well to what you just said. There's one other objection I'd like to kind of throw out as we wrap it up. And that is, that I think sometimes the the doctrine, if I can call it that, of penal substitution is attacked on the grounds that it's simply grossly offensive to people and it's uncharacteristic of a loving God. Yeah. And I would submit that penal substitution is actually the means to God's love for man. Right. And if we fail to understand the implications of Jesus Christ sent by the Father to become our sin-bearing substitute, we actually really don't understand divine love at all. That's what yeah. John 3.16 is. Like, for right. God's love of the world that he gave, it's, it is this giving. That is the means to God's love is the substitution of payment through Jesus Christ, who vicariously died for us. And I think we really must behold the unseemliness of outpoured wrath in order to really appreciate the loveliness of forgiveness. I mean, without yeah. that, it cheapens everything. The the atonement at the top, and then every other, uh, every other like sentimental, so to speak, thing that we talk about in Christianity, especially like forgiveness. So I, I think it's impossible to actually experience God's love, to know what God's love looks like without understanding penal substitution. And I know that maybe seems like I'm flipping it on its head, but I think that is the problem is we've got it twisted. Yeah. And so we somehow need make it seem like, well, God is unloving because he punishes. No, it's exactly the wrong way. In this punishment, God shows his love for us that we were not the ones punished. Yeah. Well, and, and the reality of the, the matter is um, we live in a culture um, particularly in the United States, um, and this ties into some current events things going on, we live in a culture where the concept of punishment itself is um, taboo, right? So the right. the um, sure. the New Hampshire state legislature just signed a bill or just uh, uh, approved a bill uh, repealing the death penalty in New Hampshire, and our governor said no. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So he vetoed it. And uh, the New Hampshire, and I think this might be the first time in New Hampshire state history, uh, the legislature overrode the veto, right? So we live, in a, we live in a society where in New Hampshire, you can literally commit any crime. You can do any heinous thing, and the state of New Hampshire will not put you to death. And the reason, the philosophical reason behind this is it's not because, well, well, our justice system isn't good enough to prove the crime, right? That wasn't part of the argument. It is you can't rehabilitate someone by putting them to death. Well, the point is we've moved from a culture that punishes, punishes wrongdoing and has become a culture that believes that people are basically good. And so we don't want to punish them. We want to rehabilitate them. We want to help them right. become that good person that they basically are. So the idea of penal substitution as a gross, this grotesque relic of the past is more about um, sort of postmodern concepts of, of retribution versus rehabilitation than it is about um, it is about any sort of biblical argument. And it's no surprise that you find those kinds of arguments largely coming from liberal quarters. And here's here's the reality. Everybody thinks penal substitution is grotesque until it's your time to have someone substitute for your punishment. Right, so when exactly. you get that speeding ticket when you're a college kid and you, you know, you're that liberal college kid who grew up in the church and goes, oh, penal substitution, what a terrible doctrine. Well, when you get that speeding ticket and you don't have money to pay for it and your dad has to take it out of his bank account instead, that's penal substitution, right? You're not opposed to it at that point. You don't think it's grotesque at that point. The only difference is... You know, there's a certain element of it that's right that, yeah, 
Penal substitution is a grotesque doctrine. It's fundamentally an exercise of God um, foregoing his own divine justice, in a sense, by executing an, an, uh, a criminal as a criminal, someone who's not a criminal. But right. because that person voluntarily goes to the cross, divine justice is still satisfied. And, and it's not a miscarriage of justice. Instead, it's a perfect harmony of justice and mercy, which we see on the cross. And there's no other model of, of, of atonement that can properly bring about that, that marriage of divine justice and divine mercy without some sort of incoherency, without penal substitution. And rehabilitation, at least strictly speaking from the human sensibility, is a goal without a finish line. It's exactly. just impossible to get to. And part of that is because it, when we're talking about it spiritually, sin is so deeply entrenched in every part of who we are. It's not absolutely corrupting, but it corrupts in the sense that it is prolific and ubiquitous everywhere. That actually what we need is not rehabilitation. We need regeneration. And yeah. so that's what Christ gives us through his life and death and resurrection in the atonement as best exemplified in the penal substitution theory. Yeah. You know, it may it may actually be something that the theological world needs to look at. But I wonder if maybe we need to rethink the title of this theory, because, you know, I'm, I've been as I've been preparing for this, I've been reading a lot of passages, you know, that this doctrine comes out of. And I'm reading Galatians um, 2.20, which is kind of a classic passage for this. And it says, um, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And what I think, what I think sometimes we miss, and this is one of those weaknesses of language, but also just, we're so like polemic in our, in our reform modern context that sometimes we're so concerned with fighting against the opposition that we forget to have our own positive constructive theology. Right. And if you read this passage, I have been crucified with Christ. Great. Christ was crucified. I was crucified with Christ because he substituted for me. Great. But it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So it's not just that Christ is the substitute for my penalty, as we are quick to say, but as you said, Christ is also the substitute for my life itself. So that right. double imputation is important, but it's not just the penalty. It's not just, and that's, you know, there's so many theologies of salvation that get, get imputation wrong by failing to understand double imputation. And this is just a part of it. So I, I wonder sometimes if maybe we need to find a better, more robust way to label yes. this theology, because yes, it, the, the name penal substitution does really make it sound like the substitution uh, for penalty is really the only element of the atonement that matters. And that yes. just simply isn't what reformed theology has taught uh, historically. And it isn't what the scriptures teach. So just some musing, maybe we, maybe, you know, if, if you're one of our listeners, and you want to come up with a really great new name, uh, we'll do our best to make it stick, but I don't think it's going to happen. But we'll try. No, time stamp it right here and now that we're, we're ushering in this new era of reclaiming that title. I think I'm going to throw this out there. I think we should call it like normal everyday Tuesday theory of the atonement. Tuesday atonement theory. <laughs> Yeah, which yeah. just says, because think about it this way, it's it's that dramatic and that nuanced that I, I feel like what we're basically saying is like when Jesus ate bread, like even him eating bread, he did it in such a perfect way and right. sinless way. That's the way that I should consume bread and yet don't even do it. And so even something as small as that, he's redeeming right. the whole thing. Like it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah How I good mean, God is. He, it's brilliant. He did it without craving more than was necessary. Yes, he did it with right. perfect thankfulness to the Lord, yes, perfect enjoyment exactly. of God's good blessing. He did it in a sense that loved the Lord with his whole heart, soul, mind, and taste buds. And like we, we miss that. And so I think that's a really important element. And this is the kicker, right? The, the, um, the, Penal substitution theory in Reformed theology and the Reformed confessional tradition is embedded in the priesthood of Christ, right? And what is the purpose of the priesthood? It's, it's not to rule and, and defend us. That's the kingship. It's not to right. demonstrate to us God's love or to reveal God's love to us. That's the prophethood. The priesthood is Christ acting in our place on our behalf 
and representing us to God just as he represents God to us. So that that substitutionary element can't just be substituting for the penalty, but it does have to be a substitution for the whole life lived. And the Reformed yes. tradition, as far as I can tell, is really the only tradition that properly and really in a robust sense in terms of that covenant servant, that covenant exchange that happens, really genuinely represents this in a robust biblical sense. That is a fantastic way to end this conversation and this series. I really hope that people, because we've organized them on our website, will go out and recommend or maybe catch up on some of the other theories that they told me that we've spoken about. Yeah. But this has been like a tremendously profitable conversation for me. And so before we close out, let's do a little quick spiritual conferencing, if you will, where we chat a little bit about what God has been teaching us this week. And I'll go first. I'll be really brief to start us off because it's a segue from what we've been talking about. I've just really been struck once again by James 2.19, where uh, the brother of Jesus talks about how the demons have a really solid understanding of who God is. They believe in him and they shudder. They, they fear him appropriately. And that all that to say, kind of on the heels of what we've been talking about, I was just convicted, like, I don't want any demon out there as, as best as I can help it to have a better theology than me. So that's why yeah. I want to pre- continue to participate in these conversations. So I was really just convicted, like this is in some ways incumbent upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to refine, to grow closer to God, to go, yeah. to go deeper into what it means to be in Christ, to be raised with Christ. And I think I often forget that like, man, I mean, the demons know what's up. They, they, they understand it very clearly. And um, it's just a shame that uh, we don't want to invest time into really trying to get that kind of really robust understanding that you just spoke about. So yeah, that's really what I've been thinking about this week. How about you? Yeah, I've been really convicted um, this week. And it's funny because some people tell me that they think I'm a really disciplined person, but I felt like I haven't been a very disciplined person lately. So I've been convicted, you know, this week that I just really need to be more disciplined in my you know, my eating, like I eat a lot of junk food, um, in the amount of time that I devote to reading. Um, you know, I, I'm in these seminary courses and I'm not making progress as fast as I'd like, but that probably is more related to me not being disciplined and buckling down than it is to any other sort of external constraints. So I've just been really convicted that like the life of a Christian is a life of discipline. Right um, on. Denying yourself is not just a matter of like, Oh, I'm, I'm not going to commit sins. Right. Like sometimes we think of like denying yourself like we talk about like in high school when you're in like uh, like youth group. Well, denying yourself is not having sex before marriage. That's not denying yourself like self-denial goes above the the bar of like just don't sin. Like there are things that we're called to do as Christians that involve um, at times forgoing the um, the lawful pleasures that the world can provide for us. Right. So I've just been convicted that I need to be more diligent in uh, my just my pursuits in general, because I've been frustrated that there are some things I want to accomplish that I haven't been able to accomplish. And I've been kind of wrestling through that in prayer, like, God, why is this why is this project stalled out or why why am I not making further progress? And it's not like there was some booming voice from the ceiling or some whisper outside in the storm. But it was really clear to me that God was kind of impressing on me. Well, you're the one that's throttling your your seminary courses, right? You're the one that wants to watch two episodes of TV every night instead of doing a lecture. So right. I've just been convicted that like I need to buckle down. I need to get more disciplined and I really need to like think about the choices that I make in a more uh, robust, full sense. I think you're bringing up something that I think everybody's experienced at some point or the other. And at least for me, my pattern has often been intense periods of discipline and then I get burned out or exhausted and then I I fall away into like all these other patterns that I wish I didn't. And what I've realized through time is that one, in Jesus Christ, talk about the amazing example we've just been speaking about. I I just straight, so here's the thing. He is my savior and I love him. There are also times where I just straight up admire Jesus because he's brilliant and he's super disciplined. Yep. But the difference is, you can read a million self-help books and they exist about how to get more things done, how to have better list taking, how to make be- take better notes, how to get more done with your hours, how to like get 40 hours worth of work done in three hours a week. And all those things have some merit to them, except that they will inevitably burn you out yep. because they're divorced from the Holy Spirit. Yep. So I think absolutely. I love what you're talking about because it's not just about, hey, work harder. 
It's about, hey, lean in closer to Jesus Christ. Draw your power from the Holy Spirit. Be connected spiritually to the life of God. And in so doing, I think we will always have disciplined lives because we cannot help but have them otherwise. But that's the only way we're really going to get them with any kind of continuity and any kind of sustainability. Otherwise, we're just going to end up going in this pattern where we're like, oh, I'm really disciplined and now I'm super exhausted and I just don't... I don't want to do that anymore. And then, then we're going to feel bad and feel guilty. Like I really should be getting more things done. And then, oh my goodness, I'm going to be super disciplined again in my own strength and, and then fall away. So I've, I've fallen into that so many times and I appreciate you bringing that up because I have to imagine other people are with us in that. Yeah. Well, that should uh, wrap up this evening's conversation. So uh, we appreciate all of our listeners so much. And we want to ask you to do us a big favor. Uh, Jesse mentioned at the top of the show, go check out the public domain. Uh, You can find it at domain. Uh, reformbrotherhood.com. It's got its own sort of website. Uh, we have a pretty sweet logo that uh, Paul Cox from Reftunes created yeah, for we us. Do. Um, you can pick specific works on there to listen to. Uh, and you can also find the show on uh, iTunes, anywhere you can find podcasts. You should be able to find uh, the public domain. Just make sure you spell it with a K, uh, P-U-B-L-I-C-K domain, or you're going to come up with some other stuff. So, Jesse... Tony. I wanted to see how long I could get you to wait. (laughs) Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh